I'm going to turn the meeting over to uh, my sponsor now, who will introduce our speaker, Bill. say a couple of things here. I came in the program in January in 1960, and uh, my family had a, a summer place down on Harrington Lake, down below Lexington, and we'd go down there each summer and spend some time, and usually a pretty good drinking time. But after being sober four or five months, it came time to go to the lake, and I was scared to death to get 20 miles away from Oak Street, I'll be honest with you. And I know what the hell I was going to do down there. But as luck would have it, uh, I went to the program and I found out they had meetings in Lexington, 35 miles. So I drive to Lexington three or four times a week to go to a meeting, while the rest of them was partying. And I run into a lot of nice people in Lexington. <coughs> One old boy kind of stood out because he was pretty positive and outspoken. And at first I thought he was some kind of a goddamn radical. <laughs> I soon learned that he, he worked a good program, and he'd been sober 12 years at that time. And man, that was a long time, 12 years. But the more I, I got to know him, the better I liked him. So Ed has asked him to come up here tonight to talk to people. Now, the crowd's getting younger here at Oak Street, we realize that. And some of you people may not like his lead, it may be a little too serious for some of you. Uh, but he does work a good program. you got to realize, hell, he's getting old. <laughs> <laughs> he's been sober 40 years, and he is older than most of us. And he's older than all of us, I guess. <laughs> 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 but he does a good job. It's my pleasure at this time to welcome Jimmy D. from Richmond. Come on. <laughs> God, I'm not older than everybody. <laughs> That's the reason I had my buddy come up here tonight. I got Sid come up, and then Sid's got seniority on me in the program, and a couple of years seniority in, uh, in life. And I got it makes me feel like a kid, you know. <laughs> Let's talk about Sid for a minute there. Hell, you know, I got, you know he's one of the last ones living that uh, uh, we were drinking around Lexington at the same time. And Sid was my damn idol. You see, he's just over enough and God done mighty how he did swing. Now you <laughs> hell, he the word was invented to uh, to describe Sid. Hell, uh, you kids coming up now, you just don't know. Because hell, if I did, we'd be here till next Tuesday. We'll <laughs> <laughs> take that damn long. I love him and I respect him, and he's a hell of a fine guy. And I'm glad to see him sitting on that road at night. What we need in Alcoholics Anonymous is a hell of a lot more Sids. I'll grant you that. Thanks. Sid, yeah. thank you for being here tonight. It's a great honor to have Sid sitting here. You know, sometimes my Reputation precedes me a little bit. <laughs> Did I think I'm the smartest damned alcoholic that I... Can y'all hear me back there? <laughs> that I'm the smartest damned alcoholic that ever picked up the big... Where is the big book? Where is that big book? That ever picked up the big book? I want to tell you right now that I am not. There are a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous who have done a better job. Who know more about the big book who have worked the program better. There are a lot of those people. But as I don't see any of those here tonight... <laughs> I will continue in my usual vein. <laughs> now, I am a big book man. And let's get that straight right from the start. 
And if you are not, then it's about high time you did. You know, the forward to the first edition says we're now more than 100 men and women who have recovered from us. Recovered? I'm a recovered alcoholic. I have recovered by working the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. We're now more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. We hope that these pages will be so convincing that no further authentication will be necessary. Nothing else is necessary to get sober other than the big book. That's all, and that includes, I'm going to put my commercial in here, and it's an anti-commercial too. I will not knowingly contribute to a group that sells Hazelton. It has no place in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> now, any of you dudes or dudesses... <laughs> There are do-gooders that know more about the program than Bill did, and I can show you where he says no, how it works says no, the fifth tradition says no, but we've got some in here that, oh, they say yes. That's enough for that. That's enough. Now, I drank around Lexington back during Prohibition. Never had any problem with it at all. Had a problem getting it, but not drinking it. <laughs> and said we drank some mighty powerful rotten stuff, didn't we? That's the reason our doodle got burnt out. We'll tell you about that later. <laughs> you know, coming up here every time, I have to tell this little story, I was drinking so long ago that you could go to the Netherland Plaza down here on Sunday night and get a three-course dinner for 75 cents. <laughs> now, we did that. The big bands, oh, I love to dance. I mean, you talk about a cat that can cut at you. What's that said there? <laughs> I love to dance. Still go to dances. Still love it. I didn't have to give up a thing when I come into Alcoholics Anonymous. I just got rid of what was bothering you. I drank around Cincinnati, drank around Lexington. 1940, I left Lexington. I don't think I was really taking a geographical cure. I was just going somewhere where I could get a job. I wasn't too employable around Lexington. <laughs> Even my dad, who had been in business for years, didn't want me any longer. <laughs> so I went up to Minneapolis, got a job up there. <coughs> stayed in Minneapolis for a while, went down to Eau Claire, Wisconsin, stayed down there for a while, and then went to Fargo, North Dakota. <laughs> Any of y'all ever been to Fargo? Yeah. You know, anybody that would leave this part of the country and go to Fargo, North Dakota has got to have a mental problem. <laughs> well, hell, the weather in Fargo didn't suit my clothes. <laughs> so it's either buy clothes or go to California. Well, I had been to California in 1934 and 35. Had a big time out there, and I'd always wanted to go back. So I went back to California. I had a friend out there, and I wrote him. He says, come on, send me a telegram. The father says, come on out. Well, I had a pretty good pocket full of money when I left Fargo. But something happened to it on the way. <laughs> you know, you'd be surprised how down many bare joints and bars there are between Fargo and North Dakota <laughs> and Long Beach, California. It didn't bother me. I'll tell this little story right quick. Got into California about 10 o'clock in the morning. I had $1.75 left, but I had a place to stay where I could live with these kids. Went in, showered, and shaved, put on a suit. And Went down to where this boy, I've been in the meat and grocery business all of my life, didn't know anything else, and don't want to learn anything else. Went down to this boy's place where he was working, and I told him, I said, I've got to get a job, and broke. He said, join the club. And he said, well, it's about 20 minutes and I get up, go across the street over there. I said, no, there's a little outfit over there that has five or six stores, and talk to them. I went over and introduced myself, and put in an application with the young man. Come back up, Jack got off, and we stopped in. Beers were 10 cents. So we went in and had two beers. Now, that is the only time. I don't go 
just as a drunk in here that ever had over two damn beers. Especially if it was a cop asking you. But the thing of it was that I can truthfully say that we only had, because Jack was flat broke, and as I told you, I only had about to spend 40 cents on beer. Two of these. Got back up to the house, and lo and behold, the supervisor of this outfit was there looking for a man. We talked 10 minutes, and he hired me and told me where to go to work. It was in Signal Hill, California. I caught a bus and went to Signal Hill, walked into the store in Signal Hill and saw a pretty little old cashier back there, walked up and introduced myself and told her who and she told me where to, what the guy's name was and this, that, and the other. I made a little note. I said, you know, when I get a paycheck, hell, I'm going to come back and check in to this. You don't be a, a drunk, don't be a big shot with less than two dollars in his pockets. Yeah. <laughs> uh-uh. No. So I got the job, and I got the paycheck, and I went back and checked into it. That was 45 years ago, and she's sitting right over there tonight. <laughs> this is the way a drunk operates. I hit California with about a 75 cents, showered, shaved, put in an application, drank two beers, got a job, and met my future wife and still had almost a dollar. <laughs> That was a place to live it up for during the time. And I did. We parted. I did not take the morning drink because I had to have it. I figured this. I was a party man. I had always been. I'm a nice person. I've always been a party. Hell, to go sit in just a bar and drink didn't get it for me at all. If they didn't have a nice dance floor, a floor show, and a good band, I didn't want nothing to do with it. And it's awful hard to find one of those now, you know. It's awful hard. But there's still a few of them around, and I like to go to them. I like to go to them. Yes, I do. But then the deal was that jobs were plentiful, and everybody was drinking and partying. So why wait till 9 o'clock at night to start the party? when you can start it at 9 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> don't that make sense, Jones? Yeah. That makes sense, don't it? Yeah. So I started drinking at 9 o'clock in the damn morning and drank till 12 o'clock at night. And then I began to have a little queasy feeling here after I got married once or twice. You know, that didn't feel too good. And, and, and it just then I said, hell, I'm going to quit drinking. And so I cut it off one morning. And hell, it wasn't long till I was in the damnedest shape you ever saw anybody. And a guy come in and says, well, all you need is a drink. <laughs> and I said, you don't mean it. And I went and took a drink. And everything was lively again. <laughs> and I didn't let that happen to me no more. <laughs> I know there's a guy sitting here on the front row that used to make more money than the vice president of the bank. And when he come to work on Monday morning, he had to borrow 50 cents from the elevator girl to get a drink on. <laughs> That's the kind of man I wanted to be. And you know what's the kind of man I wound up in? <laughs> yeah, well, drank on and on, and finally I got to the point where I drank myself out of Long Beach. And the war was over, and I wound up in a little bitty two-bit market out in Compton, California. And every morning, I would ride the bus to the end of the line, and then I would walk a mile. And there was nothing in this mile but vacant property. Very seldom did I ever meet an automobile. I don't think I ever saw. I can't remember ever having in a year, year and a half I worked there seeing anybody walking. And I would get off of the bus and I would be so sick. So sick. And I knew why I was sick, because I was drinking too much. And I'd say, of course, now this is a statement that none of y'all have ever made. And that's the reason I want you to pay strict attention to it. I am too sick to quit today. (laughs) I will drink today and quit tomorrow. Now, I could see some people back there, that's brand new to them, ain't it? Never thought of it. 
And I would usually have about that much left in a bottle. And then this is fear, uh, uh, the fear that we had was ingrained in us so deep that we didn't even know what we were afraid of. Now this actually happened. Over on the left-hand side going up, there were some old posts and uh, railroad ties stacked up. And how they got there, I don't know. But I would go over there and get behind those things. Now I remind you, there's nobody around there but me, as far as you can see. And I'd get down behind those and pull my bottle out. And I'd take a honk. And I'd look over around. And I'd take another honk. And I'd kill it. And I'd throw it up under there. The first one I threw up under there just hit some dead grass and man hill and died down. After a year and quarter, year and a half, I throw them on most every morning and one in the afternoon. The last one I threw up under there sounded like a bulldozer and hit a Pepsi Cola truck. <laughs> I wonder what in the hell they thought when they come out there in that godforsaken area. <laughs> they said, pack rats I've heard of. <laughs> But I can always remember, you know, you get up in the morning. Let's go through a little of this, too. I would get up in the morning, and I'd be so sick, so sick. Go into the bathroom, have to shave and get ready to catch the bus to go to work, to be miserable all day because by this time the drinking had progressed to where I never got any pleasure out of it. It was a necessity to keep me going. And I didn't want any part of it, and I could not give it up. And you would be so sick, and nothing on your stomach, and you would have a drink, and you didn't want to drink it and regurgitate. You see, I used to say puke. (laughs) (laughs) And the tears would start in your eyes, and you would take the glasses off and lay them down. The teeth are mine. I mean, the smile is mine. The teeth are not. But but nevertheless, there's seven hundred dollars there, and you didn't want to lose them either. Take them out, and then you would get down on your knees in the bathroom and not prepare. And my face would be framed in that part of the fixture that was meant for another part of my anatomy. shake and I would heave and then it would turn loose now this is beautiful (laughs) and I would get up put it the mouth put in the tea put the glasses back on and then a drink would stay down I'd get it down and I'd begin to hum and whistle and I'd lather up and I'd take another one you know and the day began to look beautiful things were wonderful and I'd take another one and I'd get shaved and I'd put a lot of that good smelling stuff on you know and then I'd come out and I'd say honey is there anything I can do for you and she says yeah drop dead you son of a bitch about the mother-in-law. And my mother-in-law stuck up for me. <laughs> yeah. So hell, that cuts off ten minutes of the talk right there. <laughs> my mother-in-law told that wife, says, you damn well better hold on to him. He's better drunk than most of them are sober. How the hell you going to talk about a mother-in-law like that? That little boy went a little short and the checkbook was out. Hell, that's the kind of mother-in-law's to have, boys. <laughs> I loved her. I loved her. But nevertheless, there come this last day that I worked out at that little market and things looked just the same. And I got up. It was loaded. I had two pints. Well, hell, by the time I got to the market, one pint was gone. And I was skinny in those days. I was really skinny. In fact, I was so skinny that when I took a bath, when I pulled the plug out, to let the water go, Thelma would put the tea strainer in there to keep me from going down the drain. <laughs> I remember one Sunday I, I went down to the beach and I, I drank a strawberry pop 
And a kid run up and said, Mommy, look at that funny thermometer there. <laughs> oh, I'm telling you, by 10 o'clock, there was only that much left in the other bottle. And I weighed 126 pounds. You cannot put that much booze that early in 126 pounds and have it operate. I thought everything was wonderful. And the lady, you know, we have people who enable us. And I'm sure some of y'all are being enabled out there now with families that mean well. And all of this. We'll get into that a little more later. And they would put up with my drinking and put up with my work that wasn't near up to par and I was good at my profession whenever I wanted to be and when I was sober. And this lady come up and says, Jim, you're drunk. Why don't you go home and sleep it off and come back tomorrow? You don't talk to us like that. We don't take that kind of crap off of nobody. And I looked her right straight in the eye and I said, if I go home, I'm going to stay. And a big smile come across her face. <laughs> didn't take her but a couple of minutes to get me paid off now. I didn't care. Remember, I still had that much left. That was Monday. Went down, drank Monday. Drank Tuesday. Run out of money. Run out of money. Now I've got to get sober. Now this is a very important part of my drunk alone, which is swiftly coming to an end. In order to get sober, all the smart people in the bars knew the answer to that. And all the people who had never had a drink in their life knew all the answers for a drunk. Didn't none of them work, but they knew the answers. They said, taper off. Now to taper off, you get a half pint. Now the liquor won't do you any good at all, but the fresh air going after them will help you some. <laughs> I got my half a pint, and I put some old robe on, newspapers around, and a granite pan. I ain't going to tell you what that is for. I think you know. And that was on Wednesday morning. Hadn't had a drink since midnight on Tuesday. And I fought it. You talk about one day at a time. Hell's fired one one day. I'm going to cry. I don't, I don't want to disturb him. <laughs> So I thought it off five minutes at a time, ten minutes at a time. I believe that's the first damn time in 40 years that's ever happened. Down election the other night, giving the lead, and I was getting wound up pretty good, and a little girl held her hand up. And I said, yeah, honey, what do you want? She says, would you... Hold it for a minute. I want to go get a cup of tea and I don't want to miss nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, that's the person that went to sleep on <laughs> So, you know, and here we are. We do, we're not honest with ourselves. I said, I need, I did not even water would stay down. Aspirin or nothing. It just, all. Oh, I mean, I was a puking drunk. And no, there wasn't nothing down there. But I was trying to find something. <laughs> and I know some of y'all, I can see some head shaking there. This is the way it was. And ain't a damn thing I can do about it. This is the way it was. And finally I said, I need some nourishment in this right body. And I went out to the kitchen and I got my half a pint and I opened it and I put a jigger full in a glass and I put some warm water in there and I put a Scoop of sugar. That was the nourishment that I was going to give myself. <laughs> I was a damn liar. I wanted to drink and was making up a big excuse to get it. <laughs> we drink because we like the effect of alcohol for no other reason. Now, you might try to blame a lot of people. Of course, I know this group is intelligent. They never blamed anybody else. <laughs> and I put that thing up to my mouth and I drank it into a stomach that had been having at least a fifth by that time every day, it went right down, made a U-turn, come right up and right out. 
I had no idea that that was going to be the last drink that I would take. But I certainly can appreciate it because it tasted just as good coming up as it did going down. <laughs> and I knew whatever drunk in here knows that you cannot get sober sucking on a bottle. Had to have the last drink. And that was it because I had to get sober to go out and get a job to do it all over again, which we've been doing. And, buddy, I shook it out till Friday night. I had a convulsion. Wife called the neighbor next door, and he was a big six-footer, weighed about 190 pounds, delivered a bottle of water, and he could take one in each hand, two on his little fingers, you know. And he just reached down, got me to the seat of the pants, and laid me back up on the couch. She called the doctor, and the doctor said, he's had an alcoholic convulsion. She says, is there any whiskey in the house? And she says, yes, he's got a bottle said, well, get some of it down him or he's liable to die. <laughs> Here comes Florence Nightingale to the rescue. <laughs> She's got this half a pint with the cork still on it to stop her and a teaspoon. <laughs> She's going to medicate me. <laughs> and she looked down and says, Oh, the doctor says if you don't take some whiskey, you'll have to die. And I said, I'd rather die than to drink. And I could see a tear coming down. <laughs> see, there wasn't no Al-Anon then. <laughs> I had her under my thumb, and I knew that was a better therapy than anything in the world. She's going to nurse me and get me well and get me back. I feel sorry for you dudes and dudes coming in with Al-Anon. <laughs> yeah, you, don't, you don't have it easy like us old timers did. <laughs> now I know. If it had been to an Al-Anon meeting the night before, she'd look down there and said, I don't give up damn whether you're dying or not. Who are you going to do, you know? <laughs> Well, that's, that's not too good a therapy. <laughs> no, I like to tease Al Nine. You know, I don't know whether you all know it or not, but uh, didn't read the front part of uh, how it works. But Al Anon is mentioned in how it works. How many of y'all know that? It says there are those two who suffer from great emotional. <laughs> <laughs> I got a telephone call from a guy that worked out uh, that had drank in the store there a little bit, and he'd quit drinking about two weeks before, and I said if I got as bad as he was, and that's something else y'all have never heard. You never picked that anybody said if I get that bad, I'm gonna quit. <laughs> he quit because I'd give him, I'd share my drink with him, and at that time of day I didn't have too damn much drink to share. He called him and said, I understand you're not working for little market anymore. I said, No, I quit that. He said, Yeah, I heard all about it. I quit just two seconds before I got fired. <laughs> Says, if you're not working, I'd come down and talk to you. Well, I thought he was going to come down and give me a job. And boy, wouldn't this nice not have to go out and apply for a job? How many of y'all have ever got run off of a job and then go in, and you tell me a drunk don't lie? <laughs> Woo, you going to apply for a job. Why'd you leave your last job? Well, the cash drawer had come up short and I was drunk. Wasn't doing any work. <laughs> That's a hell of a good recommendation, anybody. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you about that. I said, God, they're gonna come down and give me a part-time job. You know, at that time the book tells me we don't regret the past. I wish to shut the door on it. But see, when I come into the program, I regretted the past, and I couldn't see anything back there that was good. So I couldn't stand the past. And hell, the present was even worse than the past. <laughs> so all I had was to make up a future. <laughs> so I jumped into the world of fantasy, and don't tell me you drunks haven't done that. I'm going down to get me a good job, and I'm going to buy me a new automobile, and I'm going to buy a home, and I'm going to do all of this, and what you did was went and got drunk again. <laughs>
I said they come down and give me a regular, uh, a part-time job, and then I promoted myself to a, a full-time job, and then I promoted myself to a manager, and then I promoted myself to a supervisor. <laughs> By the time they got there, I was a supervisor of a big chain, drawing a big salary, and hell, I had everything. And I come on the door, and I opened the door to this prospective employer. I knew the guy that uh, had come to the store was bringing my prospective employer down, and he was about this tall had on a Navy chief uniform that was a real robin egg light blue. It had been washed and cleaned so many times. All the marks had been taken off, but where they had been covered, you could still read them because it was dark blue. He had a cigar in his mouth about that long. He was smoking one end and chewing the other. Had an eye drop down here where it had a partial stroke and it never did get over that. And you couldn't lay your finger on his face where there wasn't a scar. Everybody in the Navy had whipped him once, and some of them had gone back for seconds. <laughs> and I thought, well, he sure is a... And that's as far as I got. I got this employer. He says, we're from Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, Who, what the hell? I said, I don't need that. I ain't had a drink since Wednesday. <laughs> excluded me from being a drunk because I hadn't had a drink since Wednesday. He says, you must have had a lot before Wednesday because you're still in the hell of a shape. <laughs> I didn't exactly want to hear that. So I started to invite them in. And I looked, and hell, they was already in. <laughs> now the guy that was responsible for getting me there Bringing this other man, had just been sober two weeks, and he knew nothing about the program, except, now get this, he had had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. And you people that he saw in this meeting were the result. He saw everybody happy and prosperous. That was the result of the steps. You were the result. And he said, this is good, I'm going to get my friend. And he called this other guy to go with him. And he'd been sober for three months. And he still didn't know anything about the program. But what do you think is the first thing that he told me? He said, I went to a dance on Saturday night. And this was Sunday. He says, I went to a dance on Saturday night. And there was a big crowd there. It was an Alcoholics Anonymous dance. And when I went up, started to go in, he said... Hell, I knew that they were all liars, all in there drunk. And knowing my sponsor, he'd give them a good searching. If you had a coat on, he'd bump up against you. He went into the men's room and went through the trash looking for bottles. He went out and looked into the cars. And he says, you know, there wasn't none of them dudes drinking. He says, they were having a big time. This hit me more than all of the 12 steps, all of everything. Because that's what I love. I love that kind of life. And I said, well, if they have that fun with me, it would be too bad. They want to take me to a meeting that night, and I wouldn't go. They said, come back and get me on Monday night. They come back and got me on Monday night and took me to a meeting. And my anonymity, incidentally, lasted one hour. As the secretary and uh, or the... Uh, chairperson usually has so much to do they'll forget something this one that night forgot to say is there any new drunk sheriff for their first time tonight and at the end of the meeting he got up and said oh I forgot to ask is there any new drunks and my sponsor jumped up and says yeah I got one over there Jim Dodd and he's a doozy <laughs> they had taken me in and set me down beside of a beautiful woman who was about 55 years old. I was 34 years old at that time, and I would gladly introduce her as my mother anywhere. <laughs> she was a beautiful woman, and I said, I'm glad they set me down beside her. It was an open meeting because I said, I sure in hell didn't want to get around them drunks because people might think I'm one of them. <laughs> she looked over me and says, uh, when did you have your last drink? And I said, this is Monday. I said, oh, I haven't had a drink since last Wednesday. She says, my God, you're still as bad off as you are. <laughs> Hell, I thought this is, going to, uh, this is getting to be a habit, you know. She says, I haven't. Her name was Ivy. She hadn't had a drink for two years. And I thought, what in the hell would anybody want to stay sober two years for? <laughs> That's crazy. So she said, 
I was a championship swimmer. Oh, that reminds me of something. I'm going to digress just a slight bit here. Did you all know that one of the most beautiful romances that has ever been happened right here in Oak Street? No, I don't believe that you do. Because these people weren't here long. They were elderly people up in their late 70s, a man and a woman. And they met right here in Oak Street. And they liked each other, and they were both financially well off. And this has been a few years back. Probably some of you weren't here then. But I doubt if anybody was here would remember them because they were very quiet. At 78 years old, you don't have long courtships, you know. <laughs> they said, let's get married and go to Florida. So they got married and went to Florida. And they were sitting out there around this big, beautiful Olympic-style pool. And the old boy got up and shook his robe off, went up on the diving board, and you have never seen such an exhibition of diving in your life. Anything you could think of, the double flip, the swan, the jackknife, the back, all, all of it. He come back and shook down, put his robe on, sat down, and she says, I am amazed. She says, I have never seen such a... Oh, it's wonderful. And he said, well, think nothing of it, honey. He says, back when I was a kid, I was in the Olympics, and I won a gold medal for diving, and I have kept up with it. It's a good therapy for me. Little old girl got up and shook her robe off, and she got into the pool in dog fashion. Zip, 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 zip. And hell, as she was coming back the third time, she was still hitting waves from the first time. <laughs> you never saw such a display of speed in your life. And he come back and he says, you talk about you being amazed, I'm amazed. He says, where in the world, he says, were you an Olympic swimmer? And she says, no, I was a Cincinnati prostitute and worked both sides of the river. <laughs> in my pocket. And I didn't give a damn how I got it either. <laughs> Back in those days, I would steal any damn thing that wasn't nailed down. If it was too big to carry off, I'd lay down beside it and clean it. <laughs> but I found out that, that wasn't the way they got this stuff. No, it wasn't. They got it by working the steps and working the program. Working the steps and working the program. Yeah, it will work. The first step, you just admit that I was over alcohol and you're like, hell, I didn't have a job. I didn't have any money. I didn't have a car. But the guy down at the liquor store was driving a Cadillac. Who the hell do you think is paying for that? <laughs> Take that one over next time when you drunk start out to get drunk and have to walk to the liquor store. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you better believe it. <laughs> I wanted those things. I'd come into Alcoholics Anonymous because I needed material things, and they told me, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. And that takes in the whole spectrum. And I haven't seen anybody fail that has followed this path. They're better off financially, spiritually, the whole works. They're a success if they've thoroughly followed this path. Greater than they have ever dreamed of being. Now I'm going to tell you who don't recover. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. And that eliminates all other programs. One I mentioned at the beginning. This simple program. And if you don't completely give yourself to it, then you're not going to be ready to take steps. You're going to balk. Some of us have tried to hold on to our own ideas. I didn't try to hold on to them. I wanted to get the hell rid of them. 
Many of us exclaimed, what an order. I didn't exclaim, what an order. I said, it's what an order, but I'm going to go through with it. And our meeting was not quite as big as this one in here. And I looked in there and I said, I know that the weakest drunk out there, that I'm as strong as he is, if he can make it, I can make it. I always wanted to be a winner. I was always a winner. Until booze made me a loser. Now when I got little booze, I become a winner again. And I latched on to winners. And I did what they told me. I got me a sponsor. Attended a meeting in Huntington Park. That's one of the roughest places in Los Angeles. But I'll tell you one thing out there, that there has never been a mugging. And to my knowledge, the last time I was out there, there hadn't been a purse snatching or anything in that hole in the ground. And it's tough. And I'll tell you why. Because the dudes sitting in here had been out there. <laughs> and if anything happened to you, then they was going out and find out who in the hell done it, and it wouldn't be too good for them. <laughs> you were perfectly safe to go into that meeting the last time I was there. And I don't think they'd ever swept the floor. They wore out a big book, though. They wore out a big book. One night this old boy got up and says, Any of you drunks? How many of you drunks took the written inventory? Hell, I didn't even know the inventory was supposed to be right. I had a car by then, so I could get over there. And I was hauling drunks and going to meetings. But the next day, I tore off a piece of paper, and I knew what the inventory was, defects of character. And I wrote down three defects of character. Lying, cheating, and stealing. <laughs> now, you drunks who haven't taken an inventory, don't tell me you can't take one. <laughs> All you've got to do is to get you a piece of paper and write lying, cheating, and stealing. <laughs> and when you work on them three, damn few ain't going to be in pretty good shape. <laughs> Resentment and fear. Resentment and fear. What was I afraid of when I got down behind that? What was I afraid of when I wouldn't want to answer the telephone? Or look in the mailbox. I was afraid to look in the mailbox. Resentment and fear. Fear should be put right next to stealing because it's just about the same amount of trouble. Many years later, we were working with a drunk and he kept on getting drunk. And I said, let's find out what's wrong with him. He says, those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. Well, if we're not honest, then we're dishonest. And I went and looked up the word dishonest. And it's lying, cheating, and stealing. <laughs> and that's the damn reason you go out and get drunk because you're dishonest, you continue to lie, cheat, and steal. Now don't say Jim Dodd said that, say Webster said it, and the big book backs it up. And that puts you in zero position. The big book backs it up. I took that inventory and began to work on it. Went on down for a piece. Talked it over. Mahoney, you're halfway through. You're going to know a new freedom. That's a freedom that you'll never have in a new piece. You will comprehend the words you're in no piece. That is a new freedom. And we had had freedom before, and we had had peace before. Happiness. But this is a new one. Just like when you go buy an automobile, a new one. You had an automobile, but this is a new one. You've never had this one before. We've never had this happiness and this serenity before. And that's before we were halfway through, because I went to look at lying. And I had not been lying because I didn't have to. I didn't steal because I had a paycheck. And I didn't cheat because I didn't have to cover up the one that stole it. Before I was halfway through, four and five. I made a list of all the people that harmed. Became willing to make amends to the mountain. And I made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Now, how many of you people out there, when you read the big book or how it works here, and you said, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Who do you think them's talking to means? Well, I guarantee there's a bunch out there that thinks it's the person you're making amends to. How the hell are you going to harm somebody you're making an amend to? Go and pay them back money, apologize for cussing them out, and get them fired or something. 
You know, the 12 steps are talking about the first people that wrote the book. And they, as understood, they made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. First person singular. I made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure me or others. Now, if you have read Dr. Bob and the good old timers, it gives an explanation why that uh, was written that way. Why the limitation is the only step that has a limitation. And why the limitation was put on that step. In the early days, we were connected with the Oxford group, which was very religious. In fact, it was so religious that Bill said they were speeding it to him and uh, his drunks and buckets full, and they should have been getting it by the teaspoon, so he got out of the Oxford group and went to the Oak Street. And it was customary in those days when the meeting would be over, they'd get down on their knees, and they'd all, the newcomer would confess all the sins, and they'd all pray and get you saved. And this one gal was standing, Dr. Bob, she and her husband, and they got down, and she told of a little indiscretion that she had been having. And of course, that doesn't happen in Oak Street, so you don't have to worry about it. But <laughs> I a little indiscretion that she had been having. And the husband, uh, it says, was one oar was just a little shorter than the other. <laughs> it didn't quite, the elevator didn't go all the way to the top floor. He, uh, he just sat there very quietly. But when she come down the next morning, she had had the hell took that of her and almost beat to death. And Bob and Bill Dr. Ray said, we've got to do something about this, you know. In other words, if making amends is going to get you killed, there's no question. Of course, you won't be able to carry the message. <laughs> Man, that's the primary purpose of holding it up. Carry the message. If you're dead, you ain't going to carry it. That's true. No. So that's the reason the limitation is put on. But that doesn't give you an excuse to not make amends. Some amends you can never make. I can't go back and make amends to all the people that I sold three cents from during the depression. Hell, you couldn't get them in sense another. <laughs> but I just quit doing it. I just quit doing it. And from the time I went to work in my first job, incidentally, the first meeting I attended by myself, walked in, and saw a guy there, and we made one meeting a week. That was a deal then. Walked in, this guy walked up to me and said, Jim, what are you doing here? And I thought back, and I said, probably the same thing you are, Jack. He says, I've been sober a year, working for Iowa Pork Shops. He was a big concern right there. He says, you working? I said, no. He says, come down Saturday. He says, you know my brother? And I knew his brother. He had a shop right next to where Thelma and I met in Signal Hill. And the last time I saw the brother, he was under the meat block drunk in the sawdust. <laughs> and we had chip bologna and liver and everything done, and he wouldn't come out. <laughs> I learned when I got out the horse and I had out if I'd have thrown a half a pint down there, he'd come out of there. <laughs> he says, my brother has been sober three years and he's the supervisor. I said, that's the son of a bitch that got my job. <laughs> I went to work for those people, worked for the airphone, quit them, and I was promoted to a manager. And I worked my way up to assistant supervisor. The supervisor left town, and I was supervisor. See, I got a lifelong ambition fulfilled there, but I didn't like it when I got there. So be careful what you pray for, you lie to the gate. <laughs> <laughs> and I went back and done what I could do best. And I did it well until the time we left California and come back to Richmond. And I went in business for myself, and I successfully run a business for. 20 years there and then retired and I prayed that I could get some extra work the other day a friend of mine called me up says come out and talk to me and he put me to work regular be damn careful what you pray for you about to get it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right get on down to step number 10 11 now 11 you see salt prepare and meditate 10 is a, a now step you make amends for things that you do now. That has nothing to do with step four. Step is now, now. If you lie, cheat, or steal, apologize for it now. Don't wait till tonight. Don't wait till tomorrow. Then you won't have anything back there to take a fourth step on. We've cleaned up our back with the fourth step. And we don't have to go back to that. If we clean it up. 
Number 11, sought through prayer and meditation to approve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And that's the reason I do not stand and hold hands when they say the Lord's Prayer. Because if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it like the book says. I do Alcoholics Anonymous like the big book says. If I get connected with the other book, I'm going to do it like it says. And if y'all don't know what it says, I'll tell you where to look. After the meeting, come to me. It says, don't do it. And I don't do it. Now, it's all right for y'all. I'm glad you do it if you enjoy it. And it describes you in there, too. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, if we've got any Bible scholars in here, they're turning a little red right now. <laughs> but nevertheless, I use that quite a bit as a model. And I use it like it says do it. So that's as far as I'm going in that. Having had a spiritual awakening, we go through these steps to try to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. Now I told you, what the hell, man? I took up a lot of time reading names, huh? I'm going to take that back. <laughs> if anybody has to leave, just leave a couple of bucks extra and go ahead. <laughs> so, after having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and practice these principles in all of our affairs. Now we're getting down to affairs. <laughs> <laughs> and in 40 years, I have seen every damned affair that you can think of. <laughs> it also tells you in here, and I'm going to quote that before I get into the affairs, that we do not wait on page 69 of all places to talk about sex. No other guys that wrote that book knew what the hell they were doing. <laughs> I have seen boy, boy, girl, girl, married, single, single, married, mixed races. I've seen every kind that you can think of, and I have seen them successful. That makes it nobody's damn business but theirs. Nobody's business but theirs, and don't you try to be the arbiter of anybody else's problem. Maybe it's not a problem to them. So I don't think. Hell, I learned something about my own self, as old as I am, about sex. And don't start laughing at the old man about sex either. <laughs> 74 years old, he's 75 in May, and we have sex almost every night of the week. <laughs> <laughs> almost on Monday. <laughs> She is sexually satisfied every night of her married life. I said, honey, do you want to have sex? And she says, no, I'm satisfied. <laughs> Try to carry this message. And I have enjoyed carrying this message. The message is how it works. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has fairly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not. Completely. It gets you right there. And if you don't completely, then you're going to go get drunk. Give themselves to this simple program. Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of quitting, lying, cheating, and stealing. <laughs> That's what it says. They're dishonest. They're dishonest. I'm going to tell you about the doodle nut. <laughs> you want to know why you can't drink? I'll tell you why you can't drink. You burnt your doodle nut out. <laughs> now, I got the Alaska Award for that when I was eight and a half, and that's a cold fact. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate that. <laughs> I'm disappointed if I didn't get it. <laughs> We're discovering the doodle nut. That part of your anatomy, you see, we're different than the person who can drink and control it. Our anatomy is different. And I just figured that Sid and I drank some damn much cheap moonshine whiskey that we burned our doodle gut out. That's the part that controls it. 
When you're in good shape, you first start out, you take a couple of drinks, and boy, you get out and you have a big time. You roll up your britches, turn your coat wrong side out, put the lampshade on your head, and get on the saddle stool and make a fool out of yourself. Things are going good. And then it starts to die down, and old Gilbert says, Hit me again, boy. And you go take another shot and ride back up on time. You do that up till about 12, 30, or 1 o'clock, and then you say, I'm going to take another drink. And the old doodler says, Lay off it, boy. Lay off it. You've got to go to work. And you cut it off, and you go on home. You get up in the morning and drink two quarts of cold water and go on work. That's when you do the gut is functioning well. But then one day, you don't pay attention to it, and you take that drink that destroys it. It goes down in there, and it just goes everywhere. It's just like when the ship hit the sand. <laughs> I'm gonna wait while you think about it. <laughs> and from that time on, you can't drink. But now they have got all these transplants. <laughs> they transplant hearts. They transplant kidneys. They transplant lungs. They tell me that they've even got that very important transplant from old for old men now. <laughs> The only trouble is they can't find any young donors. Look <laughs> 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 down to one of these famous surgeons that does the transplant, and you walk into him and say, Doc, I want you to put me in a new doodle gut so I can go out and drink. <laughs> and then when you get out of that padded cell, <laughs> you come on back to Alcoholics Anonymous because you ain't got no damn place else to go and you can't replace your doodle gut it's gone and that means that never again can you drink and control it if you ever control it again I say that there's no such thing as a social drinker and this is my idea that anybody that has a takes a drink for any reason has a problem the problem is in direct ratio to the amount and the frequency with which you drink since your first drink might have been an experiment, the second you drank because you wanted the effect of alcohol and no other reason, if you're honest with yourself. Alcohol had you from the second drink. Some people do not progress to the point that we did, but a lot did and a lot more are. Alcohol is cunning, baffling, and powerful. And I want to get one thing else, and I'll say this for late in the talk, too. I did not abuse alcohol, and anybody that uses the term alcohol abuse does not understand the disease of alcohol. And if you want one of these degree dudes to come try to tell me that I abused alcohol, I will tell him a thing or two. And he's not going to change mine. Alcohol abused me. <laughs> and as long as they can get by with saying that alcohol is all right, we're wrong, then hell, that's a feather in their caps. If alcohol was all right, then damn it, y'all wouldn't be sitting here tonight. Alcohol abused me, and I hope two or three of y'all will start using that term, too, that alcohol <coughs> abused you, you did not abuse it. That's my own idea, and I'm going to stick with it. I've got two or three saying that now. It only took me ten years. <laughs> but I'm persistent. All right. Now, we come down to the end of the line. And I hate to see this come. I'd enjoy it. And this little story that I tell, I have been telling it now for 40 years, it has a double meaning. And if I've said something tonight that I meant one thing, and you understood me to mean something else, well, then come to me after the meeting, and I'll tell you the same thing again. <laughs> <laughs> My mother was born over in Madison County, one of the first families in Madison County. When I went down there and opened up the store, one of the old girls come in and said, Where y'all from? And I said, Well, I come in here from California, but my mother was from Madison County. When did your mother come in? When did your folks come in? And I said, The first one come in was Daniel Boone. When did yours get here? Let's <laughs> shut that up right quick. They had one of those big old homes out there and quite a few hundreds of acres of land. <laughs> And before the Civil War, my family never did uh, get back from that. They went broke there, and they never did get back, which don't mean a damn thing. I uh, had this big old house out to the back, and uh, a, a, a table up through the middle with benches on each side. They never set plates. 
for the simple reason they never knew how many was going to be there for a meal. Some of our kids would be over to the neighbor's houses, some of the neighbor's kids would be over to our houses, some of the little folks would get out in the weeds and the foxes would catch them. But they never minded losing it. You see, the times were different. They didn't mind losing the two kids to the foxes because a good cold winter and they'd be replaced. <laughs> but this particular Sunday, all the kids were at Mama's house because Uncle Pete was there. Now, Uncle Pete was my mother's favorite uncle. And whenever he showed up, the table was loaded with goodies. And you can't con kids. They know. And they were there in force. Big old cook stove sitting over here, big old granite pot on it. Never Uncle Pete come. Mama always poured out the grounds, put in fresh ones, made fresh. Uncle Pete loved coffee. And these tables up, and Mama always right here where she could wait on Uncle Pete. And she reached over and got that pot of scalding coffee and started to pour Uncle Pete a cup of coffee. One of them kids made a snatch at a hump of cornbread, hit the bottom of that pot, and spilled the whole thing right in Uncle Pete's lap. It just mortified my mama to death. She jumped back and said, Oh, my God, have a burn, you, Peter? And he said, oh, No, but you're starting the hell out of my leg. 